This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Once again, we're joined by Dave Green to start off, Dave, with fun with the recordio. Good way to start 2018, Bob. Well, actually, we're a couple of weeks in, but it is pretty much the start of uh, 2018. And this was, was one of my uh, columns for Focus on History in the Daily Gazette. And I must say, as modestly as I can, I got quite a reaction to this column. I didn't really expect it. I got it on several fronts. The column starts off with a, a discussion of church, going to church, Christmas Eve candlelight service. And I heard from some former fellow former Methodists, I guess you'd say, who recalled the same sort of scene. And I'll set the scene in just a moment as to what would happen in this particular Methodist church that I attended when I was a little kid. Then we went into discussing the recordio, and I don't want to tease too much out of it, but the recordio is a recording device. And uh, this had repercussions, Dave, all the way to the New York City media scene. It turns out my my daughter and the son-in-law, they're friends with a, a gentleman named Dan, who is an audio guy down in the Big Apple. I mean, he was from up here. He always wanted to do that. He always wanted to be an audio guy. And, for example, he works a lot on the Match Game and the Wendy Show. I forget her last name on TV. <laughs> and, and he's the gentleman who, let's say, if you were to be a guest on the Wendy Show mm-hmm. for some reason or mm-hmm. on Match Game, he, he's the guy that would mic you. You know, it's oh, hi, Mr. Green. How you doing? Good to see you. And I'm going to get this microphone up here. It's a way and to make I'm, a living. Yeah, it's a living. That's for sure. But anyway, he was interested in this story, you know, which was really, you know, remarkable. A young man, because this really has to do with the history of uh, recording technology. Um, all right. Well, the, the story is about the recordio, the title Christmas Fun with the Recordio. And uh, we should have an accompanying picture, I hope we do, uh, which I'll be describing in the in the piece uh, that shows my father using the recordio. But we begin this way. When I was young in the late 1940s and early 1950s, my family went to a candlelight service each Christmas Eve at the former First Methodist Church on Division Street in Amsterdam, a large and stately building which was torn down for urban renewal in 1973. It impressed me that the choir managed to march in simultaneously holding hymn books and lighted candles while singing. I mean, talking about walking and chewing gum at the same time. I mean, this is, this is quite remarkable, I thought. No one ever tripped that I, that I saw, uh, which of course could have uh, started a fire. My sister, my only sibling, was often in the choir, and my family sang a lot at home. My father and mother, Clarence and Julia Cook Cudmore, and Cook was my mother's maiden name, had sung in community shows in Amsterdam when they were younger, and my older sister Arlene became a music teacher up in Herkimer. At Christmas and other times, we used a machine called the Recordio to make 78 or 33 and a third RPM records for our own amusement. A little bit of addition to the the column, if you will. When I wrote the column, I didn't put in about the 33 and a third. But one of the comments I had on the recordio piece was that uh, Peter Betts, who joins us from time to time, the uh, retired um, or professor emeritus at Fulton Montgomery Community College, he said that 
I had said that the Recordio made 78s, but Peter said, no, no, no. He thinks the Recordio recorded 33 and a thirds, which already were in use for radio stations and uh, you know, just gave you more bang for your buck on a, on a record. And now that I think about it, I believe there were two speeds. So anyway, I've split the difference. I, I originally said 78. Pete said 33 and a thirds. And I believe we it had a variable speed. So you... You could use the recordio to make a 78 or 33 and a third RPM record for your own amusement. And one of the ways we amused ourselves and the Cudmore family was to make a recording at Christmas time and send it to my Aunt Winifred and Uncle Albert Galoni, who with Albert's daughter, Sylvia, and I still talk with her every uh, Christmas. We have our Christmas phone call with cousin Sylvia. They had moved. The Galonies had moved to Inverness, Florida, somewhere in the years after World War II. Well, what about this machine, the Recordio? First sold in 1939 in variously priced models, the Wilcox Gay Recordio. That was the name of the company, Wilcox Gay. And the Recordio enabled consumers to make their own records by using a microphone, which was included with the recordio package, or by recording audio from an AM radio embedded, if you will, in the machine. In its debut year, the recordio sold 25,000 units. My uncle had operated a radio and television repair shop in Scotia and moved south to Florida after the war, as a lot of people did, to advance his career, and his career was in retail. He ended up opening a, you know, a radio and television store in Florida, and ultimately it was an appliance uh, store down there. My hunch is my parents, the Cudmores, got a deal on the Recordio from Uncle Al Galoni, and it might even have been a gift from Uncle Al. I'm not really sure. When I started writing the column, I found there's a fair amount of information online about the Wilcox Gay Recordio. It was manufactured in Charlotte, Michigan. The Wilcox Company started out around 1910, making amateur radio components and kits. In 1926, they branched out into consumer radios. In 1931, a man named Paul Gay joined the firm, and they changed the name to Wilcox Gay, and the firm expanded into making other products. And no doubt, or no, no dispute, I guess you'd say, the 1939 Recordio has been described online as a major hit with the consumers. It was a popular device. Even to this day, YouTube has examples of recordings made on the Recordio, uh, which one online audiophile described as decent. In other words, this is a guy writing let's say maybe in 2017, saying, well, you know, these recordings aren't half bad that they made uh, back in the 40s and 50s on this home device. And it's also reported online that a couple of well-known stars started out using recordios, uh, namely Johnny Cash and Les Paul. And even more, after uh, this piece ran, I, I received a couple of uh, emails and other communications from people uh, showing me recordios that are for sale on eBay, costing $100 to $200 each. 
Now, Wilcox Kane not only made the Recordio, they also sold, well, obviously, they had to sell Recordio discs, which were blank records that you you made. And they sold them in two sizes. Uh, this is another thing where I got some information from Peter Betts and just sort of added his stuff to mine. Uh, so some of the blank discs were metal and cost a reported $2.25 for six 10-inch discs, while there were smaller six-inch discs that were plastic and cost 75 cents for a six-pack. I recall the metal discs were black, and the plastic ones were sort of flexible, and they were red. You also could play commercially produced records on the Recordio's turntable. Unlike later cassette tape recorders, you couldn't record over a Recordio disc once you created it. You you got it, and that was that was it. You had one take, if you will, uh, with the Recordio. That was a problem in our case, back to the Cudmore family, in that as a very young child, I was a show-off. Well, hardly anything has changed as I've gotten older, but I was a show-off back then, and I was fond then of off-color words. My father would say, oh, Bob, say Merry Christmas to Aunt Winnie and Uncle Al. And I would often respond by saying, poop, say Merry Christmas, Bob, poop, say Merry Christmas, poop. So this was going on on this record. It really ended up kind of dominating the record. In my defense, I knew this would get a laugh from my aunts and my sister, if not from my mother and father. My aunts usually attended our Christmas festivities. We no doubt mailed the mildly off-color Recordio disc to Florida anyway, where my potty mouth likely got a few more chuckles. Now, here comes the picture, and I'm hoping that we're able to reproduce this online to accompany uh, this uh, uh, podcast. We have a family picture that shows my father holding a vase of flowers, standing and singing into the Recordio microphone, which is on a floor stand in our living room on Pulaski Street uh, in Amsterdam. The Recordio itself is on a coffee table to my father's right in the picture. But one thing I noticed looking at it closely, and it's kind of, you know, not the best quality picture, the recording arm doesn't seem to be on the turntable, or it doesn't seem to be that it's working. <laughs> So I don't know, maybe my father was practicing. And also looking at the way his lips are set, I almost wonder if he's whistling. It almost looks like he's whistling. In this, Seems to be a glitch picture. here, Bob. Yeah, yeah, so we were having, but again, you know, whatever you made, you got. That was it, you know. And if it, and, I, and I assume you needed a recordio to play these discs back when you received them, obviously. N- not necessarily. No. You You could. But you could also play it on another record player. Oh, I didn't know it, it that. It made records. Oh. It made uh, these either 78 or 33 and a third records. See, I think that was the, if you will, genius of it. Uh, because, uh, well, let's say we made the records for Aunt Winnie and Uncle Al. Aunt Winnie and Uncle Al sent them down. And maybe they played them on just a record player. And they thought, that sounds like fun. Why don't we get a recordio? <laughs> <laughs> so, Good sales I point, yeah. Yeah, I think that's how they marketed the uh, uh, the recordio. Um, also, I talk in the picture. Uh, the picture that we're displaying online um, has been cropped. Uh, it was cropped long ago. I, I used it in one of my 
history books where I had a story about my family. So I cut this part of the picture out. But I believe the picture was taken in 1947 or 1948, as I am a toddler on the floor in the foreground playing with my aunt, my father's youngest sibling, Vera Cudmore. My sister, the real singer in the family, uh, may have uh, taken the picture. My mother and my father's oldest sister, Gladys Morell, who often, you know, didn't get along the best, are sitting on a couch smiling. I mean, they're having a wonderful time and enjoying whatever it is my father is doing. Maybe they realize he's not really recording himself. <laughs> they're <laughs> laughing about that. I don't, I don't really know. Now, the photo, again, taken in our Pulaski Street home uh, before we had a television set, because I note that there's a large, handsome console radio, you know, separate from the recordio. I mean, the recordio's to my father's right on a coffee table, but behind him on the wall is this nice console radio and a place of honor along the living room wall, a place where I remember we ended up having a television. <laughs> well, we had no television whenever this uh, picture was taken. Now, our recordio made the move when our family relocated up the hill to Amsterdam's uh, more suburban Peter Lane in 1957. And it was a few years after that, let's say in the early 60s, that Wilcox Gay, and it might even had another name attached to it at the end, and they'd started to go into making tape recorders and things like that. But Wilcox Gay went out of business, and as, as far as I know, the recordios just were not made anymore. And here's the, the uh, I don't know if it's tragic, but the sort of sad thing about our recordio. At some point, we discarded the machine and also... At some point, we discarded all the recordio discs. So I, I don't have any of the discs, Dave. Well, that takes my next question away. <laughs> yes, you're going to ask. Yeah, I mean, it, which doesn't sound, doesn't that sound stupid? I mean, I, I saved all kinds of things. Why wouldn't I have saved one, one or two of these discs somewhere, you know? Because there, we get to a point in our life when it's time to clean house. And then, and then exactly 50 years later, we wish we hadn't. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, for one thing, you, uh, I would say is, well, I'd be able to get, be able to hear my father and mother, you know, on this, uh, these recordings. But in all honesty, I've got some cassette tapes that we made back in the 80s where I, I hear my mother and father and my right. sister and all, all that right. stuff. So right. I suppose we, um, well, anyway, so was there a, a recordio in the Green household? I tend to doubt it. No, matter of fact, I had never heard of the device until you posted that article. Really? Well, that's what I've from, I heard from a lot of people. For example, getting back to Dan, the uh, sound engineer from New York City. Really? They did that? <laughs> and, I mean, it wasn't like everybody had them, but uh, it when, when uh, our line article I was reading said, that Wilcox Gay marketed them to um, the middle class because they weren't cheap. You know, I mean, they cost, I, I think you could get one for, a, when it was new, for a hundred, two hundred, maybe even three hundred dollars. But I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Back then. That's a lot of money. The, yeah. the, cl the closest I can come to any of this conversation takes me back to about 1960, first getting into broadcasting and going to a local radio station and asking them if they had any old discs that they would like to get rid of. 
Right. And, and when I went to the radio station, they said, yes, go out in the garage and there are stacks and stacks of them. And back then, you had the larger discs. Remember the very large yes. discs that we used in broadcast? And they tracked from the inside out when you drop really? when you drop the needle. And he said, take whatever you like. And the only one I remember was that I took a red disc that had contained all the commercials for Kirk Douglas and Spartacus. Oh, really? <laughs> I, wish I, st- I wish I had it, but at some point, exactly 50 years ago, I threw yes. it out. Yeah, threw it out. Yeah. yeah, I remember, I mean, I can, in my mind's eye, I can sort of picture the uh, recordio and the recordings down on Pulaski Street, which was the first home I remember. And then when we moved again to the suburbs, you know, we we're still in the city of Amsterdam, it was more suburban. The recordio sat in the basement, kind of near my train set. And I used to go down there. And I remember even after moving there in like 57, um, making some recordio discs back then. But are, are you sure it wasn't mom, your mom, who said, Bob, let's get rid of this stuff? <laughs> she could have. Yeah, yeah, I need some room around here. How long are you going to hold on to this stuff? That's right. Yeah. Well, anyway. Well, that's the story of the recordio uh, on uh, one of my Focus on History columns. And I think we have, uh, well, well here, tell you what, we're going to put in a little uh, mention of our GoFundMe campaign. We are into 2018, and we are now doing our 2018 fund drive for the Historians podcast, and hope you'll uh, be able to uh, contribute to it. Uh, I, I must say, this has become an issue for a number of, you know, just to clarify, uh, this has become an issue for a number of organizations who use GoFundMe who are charities, charitable deductions are going to be kind of a, an issue this year. That's This is not a charity. Uh, you do not get a tax deduction for it. I know this maybe kind of uh, works against the uh, idea of uh, seeking your uh, donation, but no, you're, there is no tax advantage to giving, just uh, support for our little podcast. And we depend on your contributions of financial support to keep going with the historians. Please make a donation online at GoFundMe.com forward slash historians2018. Or send a donation to the mail or in the mail. Make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horseman Drive in Scotia, New York, 123 Zero two, And thank you very much. Bob Cudmore joined by Dave Green on the Historian's Podcast. And we'll leave the Recordio uh, topic. But do uh, if you have memories of that machine, you can send me an email, bobcudmore at yahoo.com. I've also received a number of emails on a uh, Focus on History column, which I did last year, about the Woodworth Lake Scout Reservation. Um, I don't know if you were, were you a Boy Scout, Dave? You serve in the Scouts? For a short period of time. Yeah. Well, I never did, obviously. <laughs> but no, I shouldn't say obviously. I mean, people know me. It's like <laughs> the last thing I would have done. And I didn't. But my son went through a lot in uh, Boy Scouting or climbed the, he didn't ever become an Eagle Scout. But he was in the Order of the Arrow and everything like that. And I've heard from a lot of Scouts since we uh, put this uh, story out. Retired Army Brigadier General Alan Kimball 
was principal speaker as 600 people attended the dedication of the Woodworth Lake Scout Reservation in Fulton County in July 1949. According to newspaper accounts, General Kimball said young men needed the citizenship training of the Boy Scouts, quote, to successfully combat communism and other isms and keep the United States of America a land of democratic living, unquote. I've never All heard that. I've never heard that association before. Well, well, I well, must say it reminded me of "Make America Great Again." Uh, something. Right? Well, you figure. I mean, at the this at the time was in the air almost. I mean, we're talking. Uh, they had the dedication ceremony in 1949. Uh-huh. That's when anti-communism is sort of starting to peak. Uh-huh. Uh, be, you know, we're about to go to war against uh, Korea. Uh, the Russians are getting the nuclear bomb secrets. Those committees are oh. quest- questioning people down in Washington. Duck and, and cover, this, duck and cover. That's right. And yeah. this man is a general. Mm-hmm. And I've written about him before. General Kimball was from Amsterdam, I believe a native even. Uh, he moved away for a good time and, and served in the military many years. And in World War II, General Kimball... And it's an important job. I mean, he wasn't like Patton or Eisenhower, you know, leading the troops into battle. He headed the quartermaster corps. He made sure that the soldiers had meals and blankets and, and boots, like right? And boots, right? You know, which was really a vital, a vital role in uh, in the war. So that's General Kimball's little speech. And in that, in 1949, General Kimball had come back to Amsterdam. And he was personnel director of Mohawk Carpet Mills. And the mill president, Howard Shuttleworth, had provided financial support for the camp, uh, in a bleaker, which was basically in Bleecker, and I think it was in, in maybe another uh, town in Fulton County. Uh, and the camp was operated by the Sir William Johnson Boy Scout Council. Sir William was the uh, colonial leader that's uh, well known in uh, the Mohawk Valley, but, you know, maybe not as well known in other parts of the country. Located eight miles north of Gloversville in the towns of Bleecker and Johnstown, the 1,100-acre site was at an elevation of 1,800 feet. The late Millie Billingham had given the council, the Boy Scout Council, 239 of those acres, including the land around Woodworth Lake in 1944. And I think that's what made this camp more special. I mean, I know there were some other Boy Scout camps that didn't have a lake. Others did. But this one had a lake, so they could do a lot of, um, you know, water sports. St. Johnsville knitting mill owner Joseph Rainey, who had died two years before the camp opened, had actually been is credited with conceiving the idea of this particular Boy Scout camp, and the camp lodge was named in his honor. The George Duffy Health Lodge was named for a doctor from Fort Plain. It included, I mean, this camp was kind of a big deal. It included a four-bed infirmary. Gloversville doctors were in camp every morning in the summer. Sending letters of regret for not attending the opening ceremony were President Harry S. Truman, Governor Thomas Dewey, and this one I don't quite get, and radio star Arthur Godfrey. Well, wasn't know. he a, wasn't he a big Boy Scout supporter? Well, that could have been. And I didn't there really is a connection there somehow. We'll need to oh, we'll yeah. need we'll need to Google that, Bob. 
that's got to Google that Arthur Godfrey. But he he sent a telegram sending his regrets. After a tour of the camp at the opening uh, ceremony, Scout Leader John Hansen supervised a waterfront show, including several swimming races. The scouts also demonstrated that a boat filled with water could still could still support over. 30 people clinging to it. <laughs> Let's go test this. Let's test this. Well, yeah. I guess they did, and there was no you know, headline like, disaster, it's opening uh, of book scout camp. Come, come to find out, you were two people over. It could be. Later that summer, there were overnight hikes, uh, induction of boys into the Order of the Arrow. Did you get to the Order of the Arrow level, Dave? Or no, really? no, no, no. I remember that when my son did it because the parents came up. It was, well, to my way of thinking, not, it's, it was just different. You know, it was like a fraternity initiation. I'm not saying they actually hazed the kids, so they did to some extent, but not, you know, the, the way we've been hearing about in the in the news of some of the college fraternities. But that's the whole point, I guess, of Order of the Arrow it was kind of a fraternity of uh, members of the Scouts. Also that summer, there were visits by the Kiwanis Club and various adult organizations who would come uh, to support the Scouts because this, you know, scouting was again a really big deal at the time. The, the only the, the only thing I can remember about scouting when I was in at the time was the fact that I can see as we were camping overnight, and Sputnik had just been launched. Really? Yeah, 1957. And the, the scoutmaster said, okay, we got to go out and find the darkest part of the woods and all stand there with our mouths open, staring into the sky, looking for <laughs> Sputnik. And I think we did see it. I, I'm not sure. You know, there was, Somebody was saying, we lost the space race to the commies. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, that's what, it was funny. I remember watching that at home on television. And the thought that went through my mind, I, I didn't even have said it to my parents, World War Three. <laughs> It's it's hard to understand looking back at it, but at the time, I, we were all set to hide under the desks. We were. Well, uh, in the 1950s, Protestant pastors held weekly religious services at uh, the Woodworth Lake uh, camp. Catholics were transported to masses at church, uh, church in Gloversville, and Rabbi Herman Grossman of Gloversville made arrangements for Sabbath observances by Jewish scouts. In 1967, a new wooden gateway supported by stone pillars was uh, dedicated. In 1968, the National Council of the Boy Scouts gave Woodworth Lake Scout Camp its highest rating for aquatic scouting, field sports, and handicraft programs. In 1975, a thousand people were expected to attend camp that summer. And the reservation noted that the camp, and maybe this was a sign of things to come, was now open to non-scouters. Didn't really have to belong to the Boy Scouts to, uh, to go to Woodworth Lake. In 1980, a November training session was held at the Hines Pond area of the Woodworth Lake uh, Scout Reservation. Woodworth Lake was a scout camp for over 60 years. Operations were reduced in 1992 and the camp closed in 2013 by the Twin Rivers Boy Scout Council, successor to the Sir William Johnson Council. And I have heard, you know, since the column appeared, from uh, disgruntled former scouts and parents, you know, that, hey, they, 
you know, when the new council took over, there was no concern for that, you know, that particular um, scout camp. Well, make a long story short, the land was sold to a development company in uh, 2015 and has been subdivided. In fact, I talked to a man named uh, Richard Moraz, whose sons went to the camp, and their eldest son, Richard T. Moraz, has different middle initial than his dad, an Eagle Scout who became an Air Force major, purchased one of the parcels of land at the former Scout facility in Bleecker. Well, we're just out of time for the Historian's Podcast. Dave Green joining us today. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.